0: Here's why we stand. One of our values is we take God very seriously, but not ourselves. So you're going to have a pastor come up who jokes and is sarcastic, but when we read the word of God, we take him serious. So if you were ever wondering, why do we do this? We just take God very seriously. So if you would, would you get your Bibles out and stand with us as we're in Romans 8, which is just a great, great section of the Bible? Romans 8, it's page 944. If you have one of our black hard covers, And we're reading a bigger section where we're going to read 8, 1 through 8. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks,
1: Josh. Good morning. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, delighted to be able to study God's word with you this morning and and grateful that, that you're here with us, especially if you're a guest. Let me just... Uh, say welcome. We'd love to meet you and connect with you if you would like to be met and connected with. So just uh, come find someone in a, a red lanyard or, or me or anyone else you see on stage. We'd love to get to know you. Um, we're going to dive back into Romans uh, 8 here in just a moment, but what I want to do um, is give you a little bit of an update on our uh, kind of year-end financial situation. We, uh, our fiscal year runs from January to December, and so we just finished kind of closing the books and and compiling all the information uh, for 2013. And we share this just because we want to be transparent, we want to be um, as open and as honest on, on how we do things and, and uh, as we can. So let me just kind of give you some some really e- encouraging stuff. Go, go back, actually, right before, there you go. Um, so uh, final numbers as it relates to our budget. Our budget this past year um, was just over a million dollars. And uh, you'll see in a moment where could, the kinds of things that that money goes to. But um, our spending for the year, so what we actually spent as a as a church, um, was just under that, so a half a percent under uh, that budgeted amount, which wouldn't it be awesome if your government could do that, <laughs> right? I mean, this is an amazing thing, right? Everyone says, hey, you should spend less than you make, you should... Uh, you know, you shouldn't spend everything you have, that kind of stuff. Well, we, we try to not just say that, but practice that as a church and how we do things. And so, um, you, you were incredibly generous and sacrificial in your giving this year, and I know a lot of that is because you just love the Lord and you believe in what He's doing here. And so, the actual giving uh, for the year was 1,276,000 uh, plus. And so, that's an incredible number, isn't it? Surplus of, uh, Yeah. Um, and so many of you gave even after we'd hit this budget number, which tells me you're giving to the Lord. You're not just giving uh, to this church. And so that left us with a surplus uh, total of just about $271,000, which is really encouraging and, uh, and really uh, just a huge blessing for us. You may wonder, well, what's going to happen with that money? How is that going to work? And uh, what will happen with that is um, about 200000 of it we are going to keep as Redemption Gateway and put towards land. So we've been in a process of trying to find a more permanent facility, a more permanent process. The first step in that is to secure land. And so we've been in the process of making an offer. We're now negotiating with the, uh, the seller, and, and things are getting pretty close. The good news of, of that number means you've already given $200,000 to our land campaign. Right? You've already given to that. Um, that's incredible. Then the rest, that 70000 uh, ish number, is going to go um, into the redemption as a whole, into our reserves, which all the different congregations um, can access when needed for certain projects and building things and get loans for and just different stuff. So it's a really, uh, it, with both of those things, you're really making a significant investment in the future. So thank you, thank you, thank you. On behalf of the elders and uh, Redemption Church as a whole, we're really encouraged by your, your faith and your generosity. Uh, looking ahead into next year, um, here's, here's what next year is going to look like. Our budget for the year will be uh, 1250000 Now that is a number that's actually less than you gave this year. So it's a pretty conservative number, but it is a decent-sized jump. A lot of that is some new staff and new folks that went from part-time to full-time or, or were hired in different ways. Um, and so, so that's, uh, that's the budget for next year. Just in case you're curious how it breaks down, about 10% of that goes to outward focus stuff, which is uh, specifically blessing things outside of us, in our community, across the world. Um, with that money, this next year, you'll be a significant part of uh, funding a, a church plant that we've sent to San Francisco. They're doing great, and Uh, really getting off the ground in a strong way, you'll support that. You'll support work we do with refugees. You'll support work with uh, people in North Africa, Uh, not including the work we're doing specifically with Gateway at Turkey, uh, in the country of Turkey, from the Christmas offering. So a lot of good stuff happens with that. Central Ops, uh, that percentage goes to helping kind of with accounting and and bank keeping and uh, facility maintenance and web design and different stuff like that that all the different redemption congregations benefit from, kind of an economy of scale thing. Ministry expenses is uh, cost to do student ministry, kids ministry, women's ministry, blah, 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 all the different ministries we do that are really important, but, but that, that money goes there. Uh, facilities, that's the, the cost in terms of renting our particular building is about 21%. So that right there tells you a little bit of why we'd like in the future to not Uh, have to be renting. To be able to own something and and have it paid for, that would be a significant uh, release in terms of a financial ability to do more. And then the last chunk, and this is a significant chunk, is the personnel, uh, the the various staff people. And here's what you need to know. Um, Our staff people work really hard, and we don't hire staff people just to do stuff. We hire them to equip. We hire, we don't just hire players, we hire player coaches, Uh, people who can help train and equip you to do the work of ministry, because it's not like uh, Christianity is, here's the professional staff that does everything, and then all the rest of us just show up. Um, We all are engaged in doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, and we want to do that well, so our, our people help, our staff help lead that. So on behalf, again, of the elders and our team, thank you so much. Thanks for your generosity. And uh, hopefully that encourages you. If you have more specific questions, uh, feel free to see me, or probably even better would be to see Matthew, and we can work you through that stuff. So um, that's, that's it in terms of that update. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump uh, into the passage. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your kindness to us, your generosity, your blessing to us, and specifically through your people. God, I know that many people gave above and beyond what they ever thought possible Uh, gave in sacrificial ways there's so many other things we could do with that money and yet none of them have as much of an eternal impact so thank you for this help us to be faithful and good stewards of what you've entrusted to us in Jesus name we pray amen all right well let's get back into Romans 8 we uh, started back in here last week we studied most uh, we studied Romans 1 through 7 most of last year um, we said last week, if you're kind of new to this, Romans 8 is a really, really great passage. One uh, Bible commentator said that uh, the Bible as a whole is like a ring, a precious, uh, a precious ring. And the, the book of Romans, which really explains the good news of Christ, is like the diamond on the ring. And Romans 8 is like the sparkle in the diamond. If you want to get a a sense of the heart of Christianity, uh, be with us as we study this book of Romans, particularly chapter 8. There's some incredible uh, news in here, and uh, I told you last week, kind of the big picture theme of Romans 8 is the security of God's children, that God is going to take care of his children. They're going to be loved, they're going to be welcomed, they're going to be accepted. The scripture says nothing could possibly separate uh, God's love from his people, nothing at all. And that happens, as we're going to see in this passage and the rest of this chapter, uh, through the Spirit of God, through God's Spirit. We're secure because God gives us Him Himself in His Spirit. Now, we looked last week at some amazing news, some news that really is just, if you think about what this means, it's profoundly good news. Look at, uh, back in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is amazing. What this means is that God has forgiven us in Christ so radically that all the different things he would blame us for, all the different things he would punish us for, all the different things that God, who, who by no means clears the guilty, all the things that he would do as he sees us, all those punishments are, are clear. No condemnation for those in Christ, which I know, especially if you've been around church, you've heard that a lot before. Think about this for a minute. That means every thought you've ever had that wasn't what you should have had, every substance you ran to instead of running to God for comfort, every time you craved financial success or praise of man or security and you didn't trust God for it, Every time you stayed in a relationship and you shouldn't have. Every time you avoided a relationship that you should have been moving toward. Everything you've ever done that made you at all feel guilty or uncomfortable or I don't know if I should do this. All of that is the way the Bible describes sin. And I've just been reading um, through the first five books of the Bible and it's just amazing to look at all the different things that count for sin, right? It's not just the Ten Commandments. There's a lot more. Right, and our, our sort of Sin clock is a little bit like the national debt clock, right? I mean, it just just goes up and up and up and up and up and up, right? And all of that, if there's really a holy God who really knows everything you've done, you know it. You know it instinctively. He owes you punishment. Some of you are so plagued by this that even after you've trusted in Christ, you still think, ah, God's mad at me. This verse is amazing news. There's no condemnation. That sin, past, present, future will not be counted against you. And you hear news like that and, and you can't help but begin to ask, really? Is that really true? You ever hear uh, some kind of good news that you just thought, man, that's too good to be true. And what do we say about things that are to be true? They usually are. Right? I, I watched uh, with uh, Jeffrey Wilcox and we went and saw uh, the movie Nebraska. It's nominated for a best picture. And it's interesting, this older man played by Bruce Dern He uh, thinks that he has won a million dollars, right? Because he got something in the mail that said, you've won a million dollars. Now, his whole family reads the rest of it and know that it's from Publishers Clearinghouse. So you didn't really win a million dollars. It's just you've been entered to win a million dollars if you buy magazines and kind of get lucky, right? Well, he is convinced. I mean, he's heard this amazing news. I won a million dollars. And no one in his family will help him. They, they think he's nuts. And he's kind of starting to lose some of his mental faculties. And so he decides, I'm just going to walk to Nebraska. Because the office where you, you know redeem this claim is in Nebraska. I'm going. So he's just walking down the street keeps running away from his family. And so finally his son decides, you know what, I'm just going to take him. And the rest of the movie is kind of that journey. But, but that is the thing where it's like, here's this great news. It's too good to be true. No way. You know, sometimes I've had things, just this incredible news, and then I wake up. (laughs) You had anything like that? I had this incredible dream the other day. I was hanging out with my close friend, Peyton Manning. (laughs) I mean, we were chilling, we were hanging out, we were eating and telling old stories and reflecting on the good old days, and I woke up from that dream, and I was like, Man, i got to call Peyton. He's got a lot on his mind this week. I wonder how, and then it's like, wait a minute. That was a dream. Dang it. Right? So you hear this. Past, present, future sin. Anything that God would count against you. Cleared. Forgiven. And isn't there a part of you that goes, really? Am I reading this right? Are we sure? So here's what I want to do for for the rest of our time together, is I want to basically answer these two questions. And the answers are just going to be right out of the passage here. Uh, The questions are these. How could this be true? No condemnation, really? How how could that be true? How do we know that that's actually true? And then the second question, how do I know it's true for me? How do I know it applies to me? Because, notice in verse 1, we'll come back to this, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's not no condemnation, forgiveness for everyone, it's for those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. And so we're going to talk about how do we know if if this is true? How do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I know if it applies to me? So first, how could this be true? Uh, Pick up in verse 3. How do we know this is true? Verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So there's a lot of uh, kind of, especially if you're new to the Bible, there's a lot of kind of religious or kind of spiritual code words there. Let's let's just unpack what those might mean. First it says, for God has done with the law. What's the law? Is he talking about the government? Is he talking about speed limits? What is he talking about? No, the word law is is biblical shorthand um, for people trying to, earn their way to acceptance with God by keeping the rules. You could just for law, say rules, right? So he could say, for God has done what the rules couldn't do. Well, why couldn't the rules do it? Why, why is this commitment to following the rules ineffective at reaching God, right? You get this. A lot of people go, well, you know what? I, I'm just going to do the right thing. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start reading the Bible. I'm going to start you know, trying to be more generous and volunteer somewhere and and then God will be happy with me. And the whole book of Romans has said, eh. You're only accepted by God by his grace. Well well why does why does the rule keeping, why does that not work? What well, says God has done what the law, the rules, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Flesh here is the idea of a this world only state of mind. That's the condition, that's the orientation that we all have is, is the, it's the flesh, it's the here and now, it's what I can see, it's what I can feel, it's what I can touch. It, no really regard for, for the spiritual things, no regard for God and his power, but just me, my power, my, my ability. And, and here's why it fails, here's why the rule keeping doesn't work, is because of the weakness of the flesh. Because even if you go, I'm going to try to do the right thing, I'm going to try to eat better, I'm going to try to exercise more, I'm going to try to uh, pray with my spouse, we struggle with that because of the flesh, because the this-world-only mentality we have. And it says here that the, God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The word weakened there, it really means the idea of sickness, incapacitated. So a lot of you, I mean, if you've, if you've made it through the last month without someone in your home getting sick, congratulations. I mean, you're in the minority. And a lot of what's been going around is this kind of 24-48-hour to 48 hour stomach flu, you know, you get sick and then you just lay on the couch and feel awful. By God's grace, I'm the only person in my family to not have had that yet. So, Lord, please <laughs> sustain me. But what I've seen in, in my wife and my kids as this has happened is, is just weakness, right? I mean, it just takes every part of energy out of you. You kind of see the, this deadness in their eyes and I mean, just, just wiped out. And, and what, what this is saying is that rule keeping... You can't do it because you're sick. You're sick with this state of mind of it's about me, it's about what I can do, it's this world only. And so this says that God has done what, what you couldn't. It, it's like this. Imagine you're in a, a car accident and your car rolls over and somehow you, you, uh, you know, you, you're stuck underneath it. And you might push and you might push and you might push to try to not lift the car up, but just to, to get enough wiggle room that you might writhe out of it no matter how hard you push, no matter how strong you are, you won't be able to do it. What you need is someone else to do what you can't. You need a tow truck, or you need like a couple really like strong men to like lift this off. You need, you need outside help. And what, what God has done for us, this says, the reason there's no condemnation is because God has done what the rules couldn't. God has done what the law couldn't. God has intervened. He is our outside help. Well, well, how did he do that? What did he do? How how did he help? How did he do this? Uh, The rest of that verse continues. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own, so here's how God did it, all right? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. How did God solve this problem? How did God do what the rules couldn't? He sent Jesus. He sent his son. And it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, which means he's fully human, but without the sin. So for us, when we blow it, when we make mistakes, sometimes people will say something like, well, I'm only human. Jesus never said that. Jesus said, I'm fully human. He he was in a sense, more human than we are because he was in close relationship with his heavenly father unbroken by sin. And so God the Father sends his son into the world and because of his sinlessness, he is able to live perfectly. He's able to always keep the rules. His flesh is not weakened by sin. And so the first thing God does is he sends his son to do what we couldn't, to live a glorious and and vitality life of obedience and of, of blessing and of love. He sends His own Son in the likeness of sinners. And then the next thing He does, it says, it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And so uh, your translation might say uh, as a sin offering or as an offering for sin. What, what, Je- what Jesus did was not just live a perfectly righteous and obedient and loving life. He also died a death in our place. He was a sin offering. As I told you, I've been reading these first five books of the Bible, and just the, the amount of sacrifices that the people of God had to do every time they sinned unintentionally, every time they sinned intentionally, every time for this and for that. And for, I mean, it's amazing. The Old Testament is filled with the blood of animals on altars. A couple times a day, there would be sacrifices. For sins, because there has to be some sort of offering; something has to pay the price. Well, then you get to the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews says that the you know that the blood of lambs and goats can't take away sin. You have to keep doing that day after day after day. It doesn't do anything permanent. And so Jesus comes, and he's described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he doesn't just live in our place; he is crucified. He he goes to the altar, if you will, pours out his blood as a sin offering in our place, as a substitute. How did God solve this problem? He sent his son to live perfectly righteous and to die in our place. Where we should deserve condemnation, Jesus was condemned. Where Jesus deserves life, we get it instead. God did what the law couldn't. God did what the rules couldn't. He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, to pronounce a judgment on sin and say, sin, you are not powerful. Sin, you are not in charge. Sin, you do not have the last word. And isn't it amazing? Verse 1 says there's no condemnation for us because Christ condemns sin in us. So Christ was condemned so we wouldn't be. And sin was condemned through the death of Christ. Here's uh, the way that Ray Ortland Jr., a a pastor and commentator, here's a quote he says about this. He says, God has replaced the best that we can do with the best that he can do. God can do better than us, right? That's what he's done. So how do you know this is true? Because, Because God lays it out for you. I sent my son Jesus in your place to die the death you deserved. It's true. There's no condemnation. To, to condemn you and Jesus, if you've trusted Christ, would be double punishment. wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right. Jesus paid it all. Now, the next question, and this becomes really important and hopefully really personal for you, and so as we move into this question, I want you to start kind of moving from the general ideas that we're talking about it, to you, to your life, and not your spouse, not your brother-in-law, not the person you wish was here. You can send them this sermon later, but for now, you And here's the next question. How do I know this is true for me? No condemnation. How do I know if that's true for me? And by by true for me, I, I don't mean what a lot of people will say in culture. Well, They'll say, you know what, that's true for you, and this is true for me, and that's true for her. You know, we all have our truth. Just believe whatever you want, and all roads eventually lead to God. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, how do I know that this promise of no condemnation is applied to me? Because, looking at it, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, no condemnation. Not in Christ Jesus, the wrath of God still hangs over you. In Christ Jesus, you die and God says, Well done, my good and faithful servant, come into my presence. You die outside of Christ Jesus, wrath forever in hell. This is a big deal. This is serious. This, this matters. And, and some of you may just right there go, gosh, that feels so narrow and so exclusive. Especially those of you who, who wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Uh, you know, one of the common things you'd go is, you know, I just don't understand why Christianity, you guys think you're right and everyone else thinks they're right. And how, how do you know? And, and why does it have to be so narrow? Why isn't it just be a good person and, you know, it all work out? Well, here's the thing you You don't understand. First, Christianity is narrow. It is. Anyone that tells you Christianity isn't narrow and exclusive is lying to you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle said, there is no other name under heaven by which uh, men may be saved. Paul here says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. It is exclusive. But here's what you need to see. So is everything else. Every religion, every truth claim, every philosophy is exclusive, right? The Muslims have a very exclusive faith claim. There's one God, Muhammad is his, is his prophet. Do these five pillars, you're in. Don't do them, you're out. It's very narrow. The, the Mormons, they've got a fairly exclusive truth claim. would say Joseph Smith was a a, a prophet of God sent to restore the church to its original design. Here's this extra revelation. We believe that's God's word. If you don't believe that, you're not, you're not in. At least you're not in the highest place. This is what every truth claim is about. They're all narrow. Even, and this is what's so funny to me, even the people who would say, well, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, all roads lead to God. Well, do you realize that that is also a narrow truth claim? That is only true if there's a God who lets all roots lead to him. There's no such thing as exclusive truth is an exclusive truth. It's a declarative statement about this is how reality is. So everything is exclusive. Everything is narrow. The question is which one's true? Which one's true? Which one is based on things that happen? And here's the claim of Christianity is that Jesus Christ predicted his death and his resurrection and did it. It's a historical fact. People who are not Christians and people who are Christians will testify that Jesus Christ was a real person. He died on a cross and he rose again. It happened. It's true. Oh, I don't know if I like that. Okay. But, but your, your problem is not with exclusive truth claims, because everyone has that, your problem is you just want to resist Jesus. That's okay. At least be honest about what you're resisting. So this is an exclusive faith claim. But I want you to be able to sort of wrestle through, am I in Christ? Am I a Christian? Is condemnation against me gone, or do I still remain under it? That's what Paul's going to help us explore. And he does it really by comparing... um, two different kinds of people. So, so here's what he, we're going to look at kind of through the rest of this passage is uh, he says there's two kinds of people with two different mindsets, two ways of living and two results. Two kinds of people, two uh, result or two mindsets, two ways of living, two results. Now, he's not talking about a Christian here that could either live in the flesh or live in the spirit. He's talking about two realms, two groups of people. There are those in the flesh, there are those in the Spirit. So first, uh, two categories of people. Look at chapter 8, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the two categories of people are those who live according to the flesh, non-Christians, and those who live according to the Spirit, Christians. Now we've already said that the flesh is that sort of this world-only mentality. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But two categories of people. Now, here's what's important to realize. There aren't three categories. See, some people will say, well, there's non-Christians, there's regular Christians, and then there's committed Christians. Or there's non-Christians, there's ordinary Christians, and then there's spirit-filled Christians. And and so this is usually used by the regular people I don't, I'm not. I'm not a non-Christian, but I don't want to go that far. This was my story. I grew up in a church-attending home, and I wanted enough Christianity to make me feel like a good guy and look like a good guy and succeed at sports. But I didn't want all of it. I remember going once to a, a, a junior high youth group thing, and I didn't really go to junior high youth group very much. Never went to camps. Never did any of that. I wasn't that interested. And, uh, but, this one night they were talking about sex and dating, so I was there, right? (laughs) Because as a seventh grader, what could be more important? Um, And I remember there being a guy there uh, who who said, he he said, I've made a commitment that I am not going to kiss a woman until my wedding day. And I thought, that's freaking crazy. (laughs) What? What? Now, now listen, the Bible doesn't have a command about that. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not kiss a woman till your wedding day. But this guy, it was driven by a conviction, by a passion of I so love Christ, I so want to obey Christ, I so am aware of my weaknesses towards temptation that I'm going to try to do whatever I can to honor Christ. So rather than asking the question, how far is too far? This guy was asking, how can I pursue Christ? Well that didn't compute to me. I mean, I went, like, I, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't want that. I was in that sort of ordinary thing. Do you, do you hear what Paul's saying here, though? There's not three categories. Spiritual Christians are not like the, the varsity and everyone else's JV. If you're not a spiritual Christian, if you're not filled with the Spirit of God, then you're in the flesh. It's one or the other. Now, flesh sometimes looks a little different. and Spirit sometimes looks a little different. But there's only two categories of people. It also says there are two ways of living. Right? Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What is it to live according to the flesh? Well, again, if flesh is this this world-only mentality, it's all about me, it's all about my power, who cares about God and what He can do? Um, if it's that, that's, that's the flesh. If the Spirit is, God, what do you want from me? And it's very different. Now, here's what's interesting. The flesh is not just about sensuality and sort of extreme disobedience. Uh, people who are living according to the flesh often are really religious, but they're doing it just in their own power, in their own grit, in their own strength, forgetting what God has done, and going, yeah, 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 God's done that, but I gotta obey. I gotta do the right thing. Here's a great quote, again, by Ray Ortland. He says this, you may be a fleshly playboy or a fleshly Pharisee, but it is the same effort. Right, the fleshly playboy, what does he say? Look at me, I can do whatever I want. Live for myself. What does the, fer- the fleshly Pharisee say? Look at me. I'm doing this for God. What's the common denominator there? Look at me. It's my power. It's my strength. I get the credit. Right? This, is, this is why Jesus in Matthew 6 is talking about you know, there are people who give and, and tithe and, and fast, uh, but, but the Pharisees, they do it in order to be seen by others, so everyone will be impressed. But when you do it, do it in secret, so, so God will see it and reward you. See, it, it can go either way. But both of them are focused on themselves. Whereas living according to the Spirit is having the desires of the Spirit and loving God more than you love yourself. And so instead of look at me, it's saying, God, I want to look to you. You be my vision. You be my heart. You be my passion. It's the prayer that says, God, not my will, but yours be done. I've lost my rights. I want to follow you. Whereas the the fleshy religious person, when things don't go right for them, you know what they do? get mad at god god you owe me god don't you know all that i've done for you and then you repay me like this god god owes you that's a this world my power my that's a selfish that's a fleshy way of thinking so you may be very religious and still not yet be a christian Or you might be wildly in sin, and it's very obvious to you you're not a Christian. In either case, there's an opportunity here to get right with God. Two categories of people, two ways of living. Uh, Third, uh, two mindsets. Two mindsets. Uh, Look at verse 5 again. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it doesn't submit to God, it can't. Those in the flesh can't please God. So you get this, this is a mindset. What does that mean, a mindset? It it means to, uh, to give careful consideration to something with an intent of action. So people in the flesh don't just sort of accidentally bump into that they intend they think about they dwell on they focus on living for themselves or being really impressive or building a great reputation setting your mind on the flesh is intent on living for yourself setting the mind on the spirit is intent on living for god it's it's interesting there he says uh those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit what does that mean how do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. I mean, do you just kind of walk around and go, Jesus, 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 God, Gospel? Do you start reciting creeds? I mean, I guess you could. I, I don't. But what does this mean to set your mind on the spirit? Well, here's what's cool. In the book of Romans, over the next couple weeks, we're gonna look at some of the things the Spirit does. So if you want to set your mind on the Spirit, you can look to see, well, what does the Spirit do? So, for example, here here some things. Uh, Jump down to verse 13. Oops, sorry. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit reminds us, you've been forgiven. You've been set free. So put sin to death. Do you ever think about where you're struggling to follow and trust and obey God? Do you ever think, man? Not because of duty, not because it'll make God more happy with me, but because it would obey Him, it would honor Him. Do you ever think about that? That's something you could think about and set your mind on the Spirit. God, thank you. You've forgiven me. Help me to honor you in these particular ways. That's one thing. Another thing you see in verse, uh, starting in verse fourteen, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What has the Spirit done for you? He has adopted you into God's family. He is in your life, assuring you that you're loved, that you're accepted. Think about that. Wake up in the morning and go, Father, I don't deserve it, but thank you that I can call you Father. That's to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Go down to verse 26 says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Holy Spirit welcomes us into God's presence, encourages us to move toward God rather than away from Him. That's the kind of stuff you could begin to think about if you're in the Spirit, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. There's a terrific movie that was on the other night and, and we watched it, The Help. Have you seen that movie? horrific and it's so sad and it's so funny in certain parts and but one of my favorite parts and it kind of runs throughout the movie is uh, abeline who's kind of the main character uh, one of the help she's caring for a, a little blonde girl and maybe it's just because the girl kind of looks like my daughters but i you know she gets down in the little girl's face and she always says you is kind you is smart you is important the little girl says back to her, You is kind. You is smart. You is important. And it becomes this mantra that Abelene keeps telling this little girl. And then at the end, she asks her, What have I always told you? The little girl says, You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Well, what if for you, to set your mind on the Spirit, what if you began to say, I is forgiven. I is accepted. I is welcomed by God. I is forgiven. I is accepted. I is welcomed by God. What if you began to say that to yourself? That would change your mindset, right? It'd be a, a mindset on the things of the Spirit. Two categories of people, two ways of living, two mindsets. It leads then finally to two results. Two results. See, these lead different directions, right? The, the path you're on leads somewhere. Right? You aren't going to be thinking constantly about your reputation and your comfort and your control and everything that's important to you here and end up in a, in a direction that, that's good and God-honoring and, and life-giving. You're not going to. You weren't made for that. You were made to be connected to God and to rebel against that lead somewhere. Where does it lead? Well, look at what he says. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. You live for the here and now don't trust God. Do it in your own strength. It leads to death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That means uh, angry at war, at enmity, hatred. Hatred toward God. The mind set on the flesh, the mindset on the here and now, is hostile to God. You go, what? I don't feel like I'm that hostile to God. Yeah, but everything about your focus and your actions and what's important to you says, God, you're not important. God, I don't care. Even the religious person who, who's just focusing on all doing it themselves is like, God, I, I know all that Jesus stuff, but I, I can do this. It's Hostile to God. It says this, the, verse 7, the mind on the, set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Unwilling and unable to submit to God. Not necessarily unwilling to try to follow the rules, but to really submit to Him, to say, This is, this is the gift. I'll, I'll take it, Lord. You've done it all. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's a pretty destructive list, right? Death, hostile to God, unable, unwilling to submit to God, unable to please God. What's the path of those who are uh, mindset on the Spirit? Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And then by extension, you would have to say, able to submit to God, able to please God. So, So it really leaves you in two places, two categories of people, two mindsets, two ways of living, two results. Now, this is important. Paul is not saying here that Christians are called to be spiritually minded. He's saying that Christians are. Spiritually minded. Right? This is, there's not a command here, be spiritually minded. No, it's, it's a statement of fact. Christians are spiritually minded. Non-Christians aren't. Are you spiritually minded? Where is your heart and your mind set? Is this promise that there's no condemnation for those Who are in Christ Jesus? Are you in Christ Jesus? Can you claim that? Now, now here's here's one of the things that's always funny to me when you kind of lay out a list like this. You go, okay, mindset on the flesh, death, hostile to God, unable to please Him. Mindset on the Spirit, life, peace. Which do you want? Right? It's like this no brainer, right? It's like it's like when you ask a little kid, Do you want to go to heaven? Why? What's it like? Do you know how to get to heaven? Believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Right? I mean, it's like, I mean, like, what do you, all right, behind this door, death. Behind this door, life and peace. Up to you. I mean, that's a no brainer, right? Like, everyone in this room is going to go, give me life. I want life, peace. I want to be forgiven. I want to be accepted. I want to be welcomed. But so many aren't. So many aren't willing to really trust Christ. You go, I, w- I want all that benefit, but I don't want the cost. My friend Tyler, he was telling this story recently about his youngest daughter, uh, Harmony, who is one years old, and, uh, or one year old, I guess. Um, and she loves her black boots. She has some kind of high black boots like her mom, and she loves her black boots. And so she'll always say, boots, boots. And Tyler will go, you want your Boots. Boots. But she's also real rambunctious and moves around a lot. And so if you're really going to, like, get the boots on her, you have to hold her still. And that's a very difficult thing, apparently. And so as soon as you kind of corral her to get her to sit still so you can put the boots on her, she goes, no, no, no. It's Like, do you want your boots or not? Boots, boots. Hold still. No. (laughs) And that's what it is. That's what this is. Do you want life? Life, life. Okay, well, here's what that means. That means you are going to have to give up your focus on yourself. It means you're going to have to give up living for your power, your pleasure, your control, your security. It means you're going to have to trust yourself to God. And it might cost you a lot. There are people in this room that, that coming to Christ has cost them their marriage. Coming to Christ has alienated friends This is not just a, hey, life, and everything will be rosy. This is a life with a big cost. Jesus died for it. Many of the apostles died for it. It might not cost you that much, but it'll cost you at least your pride. It'll at least cost you your total freedom. When you hear that part, you go, I want life, life, life. No. Not if that's what it costs. And so here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, if you go through this and you go, you know, I'm far from perfect, but God has done a work in me and I've been accepted by His grace and by His grace I I do love Him and I do trust Him and I do want to live for Him, then then here's, here's an opportunity to be encouraged. Here's an opportunity to rejoice at the work of God in your life. But if you would look at this and go, I think I represent more the person of the flesh, then here's the good news for you. If you are willing to lay down your pride, if you are willing to lay down your this world only mentality and turn your attention to Christ, this promise can be true for you. What an incredible opportunity. That all of that sin, all of that doubt, all of all that can be washed away and you can be brought into a relationship with God where you could say, I is forgiven. I is accepted. I is welcomed by God. If you're in that second category, maybe you're at a point where you're just going, I'm still wrestling through this, I'm trying to figure it out. You're in such a great place to do that. Hope you'll talk with the people that brought you. I Hope you'll talk with someone in a red lanyard or one of the folks that'll be praying for you. We want to help you on that journey. But you need to realize, if you go down that journey apart from Christ and you get to the end, apart from him, there is condemnation. But not for those who are in Christ. What a blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your abundant grace to us. Thank you that uh, regardless of uh, the decisions we've made or the choices we've made or the ways we've dishonored you, that if we will trust you by faith, you will accept us, you will receive us, you will forgive us. God, I pray that uh, you would be working in a powerful way now, that uh, those who are in Christ and know it would be overwhelmed with gratitude and joy, and those who are not yet in Christ would, would begin to, to move toward you in faith. God, we love you, we trust you, in Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. What a great sermon. This sets up what we're going to do perfectly. A lot of times the story comes right into communion and sets it up perfectly, you get a picture of Jesus. This sets it up in that it sets the stage of what's happening in this church right now. So in this church we have those of the spirit, Christians, born again, saved, whatever words you would use. And then we have non-Christians. You guys aren't the non-Christians, and you guys are the, you get what I'm saying. We've got both groups here. And that's the way God designed the church is you want Christians and non-Christians coming together to really examine this person, Jesus. And I'm reading through the Old Testament. I'm in Deuteronomy too. And Moses, you know, he's the guy who kind of set up the whole Old Testament. He gives the law. He takes them out of the uh, slavery. And he's he's getting ready to like prepare him for this new life that God has set up. And here's how he starts it. He says, Take care to be diligent with your soul, not forgetting what your eyes have seen and not letting your heart drift from what you know. And here's what this moment, it means for Christians. Be diligent with your soul. And here's the word I would give you is remember. This moment is a chance to remember what God has done for you in the person of Jesus. But here's what's great about this moment. Non-Christians, you can participate. I'd tell you this, be diligent with your soul. You have a soul. You have a soul that was created by God. And a lot of a lot of non-Christians would just kind of brush off condemnation and all this religious talk. Well, here's the reality: have you ever, 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 for a second, felt any sort of guilt? And everyone would say, Yeah, of course. And I'd say, Where'd that come from? Go talk to your science teachers. Where where in the evolutionary path did that come from? Because I see lions doing some pretty nasty things, and I don't see any remorse in their eyes. And I see the animal kingdom doing some pretty violent things, and there's no remorse. Yet this odd creature, the human, does stuff and then feels this guilt, this invisible force of, gosh, whether they're Christian or not. And the whole passage we started with was there is no condemnation. So, Christian, here's your moment to remember that that guilt is gone forever. Gosh, that's good news. I is forgiven. I is accepted. I is welcome. That is true of you, Christian. Non-Christian, I'd tell you, be diligent with your soul. Your words not remember. I'd just tell you to examine. Like Luke said, just keep asking questions, looking at this person of Jesus. If God really exists... And Jesus is God. My goodness, why would you not become a Christian? God's entrance into this world was as a baby to live a life where he ultimately was going to be crushed for us. And that's the God I get if I just accept this Christianity. Yep, that's the God you get. He wants you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to accept you. So that's what this moment is. Christians, remember it. Whatever you got to do in your mental capacities to remember this moment, and remember Jesus, remember the goodness of God, do it. So we try to spur it on through music. So we're going to sing together because it helps me remember. Songs are good to do because they help you remember. We're going to give because it reminds us that this world is not the end. Our money is just a gift. We can give it back easily. And then we take communion as just the most tangible reminder of what this is all about. We take a cracker, and it represents Jesus' body. He really lived. Whether you're a teenager whether you're 80, his life covers your life perfectly. And then we drink some juice. Whether you're a teenager or 80, you've got junk, and that's gone now. And the sweetness of the juice is a reminder that he took your punishment. So that moment is for Christians. Enjoy that. If you're not, just examine. Just let the elements pass. You and God, do your business. However you do, come talk to someone after, but... Be diligent with your soul. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, says, there is nothing of more importance than the eternal destiny of a man's soul. Be diligent with it. That's what this moment's about. So whenever you're ready, we're going to have the guys come forward. Communion's on your own. So when your heart's ready, you can take it.